and today I'm coming from the DMH UCLA Public Mental Health Partnership to bring you a topic, um, medications for severe mental illness, what non-prescribers need to know. So um, I really tried hard to keep you guys in mind and not just make this um, sort of a rehashing of medications and side effects. So I hope it'll be helpful. And I just want to say a very, very large thank you to Jean Lundquist and Stephanie Moon, who uh, helped me with this lecture so much. So thank you for that. Um, all right. So um, we're going to start out today talking about some of the challenges, of which there are many. Um, so be patient, because at the end, we will get to solutions. But there are quite a few barriers that I want to just highlight. So what stands in the way of clients taking medications? Um, this review slide, uh, sorry, this review study from 2020 actually uh, illuminated quite quite frighteningly, that only 56% of people with schizophrenia, 50% of people with major depression, and 44% of people with bipolar disorder don't take their medication. So we've actually got quite an uphill battle um, in, in trying to get people to take their medication. But you may ask, why is it so important to take medication? Um, so in 2018, uh, they did this really amazing study to look at all of the ways in which um, medication non-adherence uh, could lead to some pretty concerning outcomes. So we're going to take a look at those. Um, the most important thing, when clients aren't taking medication, the most obvious is that, of course, their illness gets worse. Uh, but also something um, that's a little bit sort of confusing is that they tend to get prescribed more medication and at higher doses because the doctors don't necessarily know that they're not taking their medication. So their symptoms are getting worse and doctors increase the dose accordingly. Um, we also know that future treatment does not work as well. Uh, and um, they're less able to function in a job and they actually have uh, less life satisfaction. When clients don't take their medications, we know that they are actually twice as likely to be violent as people who take their medications. And of course, as a result, they have increased arrests and increased incarceration. Um, they actually can have more medical conditions when they don't take their medication. And suicides increase. And in sort of a one way to look at this is, is they looked at bipolar people, people with bipolar disorder uh, over 10 year period and were looking at their rate of suicide and what could increase their rate of suicide and decrease their rate of suicide. And they found that the, the, the factor that they could most easily control and decreasing their suicide risk was medication adherence. Um, also, they get uh, increased substance abuse if they're not taking their meds and uh, reduced life expectancy. Um, I have not memorized this stat, so I have to read it for you. Um, they, the study found that 89,000 premature deaths could be avoided by medication adherence. Um, and, and a way to sort of think of this is patients with schizophrenia, bipolar disorder already have um, 
lower life expectancy, but they found that people with schizophrenia actually live 20 years less than people with other severe mental illness. Um, so uh, impacting life expectancy is really important. Um, of course, more of the obvious, when clients don't take their medication, they get more hospitalization, more ER visits, clinic visits, and it actually increased healthcare costs. Uh, there's a College of Preventive Medicine that estimated that medication non-adherence uh, costs our healthcare system between 100 and $300 billion a year with a B. But um, I, th I think the thing I need to sort of hammer home is why is it so important for you guys as non-prescribers to talk about medication with clients? Um, my philosophy is that really all mental health staff need to uh, sort of reinforce really basic principles to, um, to increase your client's wellness. And so that would be medication adherence, therapy, and social determinants of health. So for instance, uh, when I'm working with trainees, um, resident trainees who are becoming psychiatrists, one thing I really hammer home with them is that they also need to include uh, therapeutic modalities and talk about the importance of therapy and also uh, understand the importance of interventions using social determinants of health. So for instance, um, remembering how key it is to have housing, to have uh, to address food insecurity, to be in a safe neighborhood, um, all of these things, community, to be have a supportive community. All of these things are really important in coming together to um, get a client as well and healthy as we possibly can. So why is it so hard to get clients to take their medication? We're gonna go through a lovely long list here. Uh, side effects, medication myths, delusions and conspiracy theories, and problems with trust and practical obstacles. So first we're gonna do side effects. We're gonna do a little matching game. So I'm gonna ask you guys for some participation. Um, don't fall asleep on me quite yet. <laughs> um, so we're gonna match uh, four clients. We're gonna tell the story of four different clients on the left. And I want you to tell me if that medication that we're talking about with the particular client is an antipsychotic, a mood stabilizer, an antidepressant or benzodiazepine. Okay, so here we've got Jane. You might recognize her. She's a 54-year-old female with depression, anxiety, and alcohol abuse. And she's requesting a medication refill two weeks early because she said somebody stole her meds on the bus. That is like the number one excuse I hear from people. Uh, you notice that she's slurring her words, her eyes are partly closed and she's stumbling around like she's drunk, but she insists she did not drink today and she actually doesn't smell like alcohol. So what do you think it's possible that she may have taken? Uh, what group of medications might be uh, causing these effects in her? Could it be antipsychotics, antidepressants? Um, mood stabilizers or benzodiazepines? Any guesses? Yes, yay, benzos, <laughs> exactly. Um, okay, so benzodiazepines, long word, uh, just this is a category of 
highly addictive medications that we sometimes prescribe uh, purely for sleep and anxiety. Um, the, the sort of pain in the butt thing though, is that uh, some of the side effects, sleepiness, unsteadiness, dizziness, um, these things can cause people to fall. So one of the, the biggest things we worry about um, when people are taking benzos, as we call them for short, um, are falls. So uh, the examples you might see there are Xanax, Ativan, Clonopin, Valium, those are, those are benzodiazepines. Um, and because they're highly addictive, of course, we don't like to prescribe them, but there's also sort of a more pressing issue is as people get elderly and their liver function decreases, um, the effects of these medications can actually be really dangerous. So they, we know that people who are elderly and take this group of medicines have a much higher risk of falls, which of course is not something you want um, when their bones are so brittle and they're really um, prone to breaking bones. Um, but also it can cause delirium. So that means they might wake up in the middle of the night or in the daytime if they're taking enough of them and not know who they are or where they are. And that's actually a medical emergency. Um, it's it's that it's impacting their brain so much. So uh, you'll find that there's often a push for doctors to really get the, the clients off of that group of medications around age 65 and over. <clears throat> okay, now we've got Nico here. Um, he is a 19-year-old male with autism and intellectual disability, disability brought in by the, to the clinic by his Tagalog-speaking mom. The doctor wants to increase his medication to deal with the, the aggression, but his translator says that the mom is concerned that he's actually gained 20 pounds and his hair is thinning. Any guesses as to what group of medications might be causing these side effects? Uh, again, antipsychotics, antidepressants, uh, mood stabilizers, or benzos. Any guess? Yes, yay, thank you, <laughs> mood stabilizers. Uh, okay, so what do we need to know about mood stabilizers? Now the funky thing about mood stabilizers, so that includes Depakote, Lithium, Lamictal, Tovamax, Trileptal, um, they're all very different. Um, most of the grouping of medications, they, they tend to have the same, what we call mechanism of action, which means they tend to work on the brain in the same way. But this is just a sort of big collection of medicines that work entirely differently. So in some ways, like the side effects are, you know, not necessarily applicable to all of them. Um, I think the really important thing to pay attention to is Depakote and Lithium, which we use a ton of um, with developmentally delayed people, uh, a lot of Depakote and also Depakote and Lithium a lot in bipolar disorder. Um, those medications are incredibly useful. Lithium is the gold standard treatment for bipolar disorder, but um, they have a lot of side effects and they have to be monitored. So you actually have to check the levels every now and again to make sure that it's working in your blood at a certain level so that it's actually functioning, but that it's not too high so that it becomes toxic. So for lithium, the line between what's 
functioning and what's toxic is really razor thin. So you have to watch them very closely. Uh, you also have to watch their kidney function because unfortunately lithium, while it is a wonderful, helpful medication, it also can kill your liver over time. I'm sorry, kill your kidney over time. Um, so we have to constantly check on the kidney function. And you can unfortunately take too much lithium and die. And if your kidney poops out, you actually have to be on um, dialysis like people with diabetes. Uh, which is like a terrible way to live. So uh, that's something that's really important. And I think oftentimes why psychiatrists tend to avoid it, even though it's um, very useful for bipolar disorder. Depakote, similarly, you have to get levels. Um, it's not nearly as easy to be toxic on Depakote as it is with uh, lithium. Uh, but that particular medication, Depakote, can impact your liver over time. So you often also have to check on liver function and make sure that's not, um, that that's okay. And both Depakote and lithium uh, have side effects for fetuses. Um, so particularly with Depakote, which is one that we really worry about, it's recommended that people who are uh, women of reproductive age who can have babies should not actually be on Depakote at all because the risk to the fetus is so high. Okay, Jay. Here's Jay, a 32-year-old male with depression and anxiety, which is well-controlled with medication for the last three years. But during a visit with his case manager, he mentions that he's avoiding going out on dates because he's having trouble down there. And he's pointing to his crotch. Um, and this happened ever since the medication started. So what medication group might be causing these side effects? Antipsychotics, antidepressants, mood stabilizers, benzos. It's pretty obvious. Yes, thank you. Um, okay, so antidepressants. I mean, I named some there: Prozac, Wellbutrin, Lexapro, Selexa. There's like the list is really quite long. There are so many to choose from, um, but the general side effects uh, that the, and the common, most common side effects are actually anxiety which is unfortunate because of course, sometimes you want the antidepressant to treat the anxiety, uh, nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. But those side effects actually tend to go away pretty quickly. So if the client can hang in there for a few days or a few weeks, those should be gone. Um, if they are not gone, um, you know, after let's say four weeks, then maybe that's just not the right fit for that medication uh, for that patient. Uh, but the really annoying thing about um, most antidepressants is the sort of little collection of sexual side effects. So low sexual drive, difficulty achieving an orgasm, difficulty getting or keeping an erection. Um, the reason those are so challenging is because unfortunately we don't really have medications to deal with the side effects. Um, a lot of clients will ask for Viagra and that sort of thing. It might help, but it also might not. Uh, the only antidepressant that's sort of really um, has a lower amount of sexual side effects is Wellbutrin. Otherwise, there's not really, sometimes we might lower the dose and see if that helps, but there's not a real great fix for that particular side effect, in which case you might just have to choose another antidepressant and see whether that one um, sort of has sexual side effects, but it's all a, a bit of trial and error. 
So for now, we have a new case, um, Octavia. She is a 65-year-old female with schizophrenia. She's living in a nursing home. An aide mentioned that she's been sleeping most of the day, and she's gained so much weight that she actually has trouble getting out of bed and using her walker independently. And you know that six months ago, the doctor changed her medication because she was cursing at staff and she was too paranoid to leave her room. So what group of medications might that be? Antipsychotics, antidepressants, mood stabilizers, benzos. Uh, so um, again, there's like a ton of side effects we could look at, but I really wanna focus in on the difference between old antipsychotics and new antipsychotics. So that's the first generation are the old ones, second generation are the new antipsychotics. So when we're talking about first generation old antipsychotics, we're talking about Haldol, Thorazine, um, uh, Prolixin, all of those medications, the biggest sort of, I'd say most prevalent side effect are the movement disorders. So you'll see things like tremor, slow movements, restlessness, painful muscle contractions. Those are actually painful, painful muscle contractions are super easy to treat. Uh, we just give Benadryl or Cogentin. Uh, if they're in the hospital, we actually just give them a shot of it because it happened, it fixes it right away. But if you're at home, you can just take a pill and that makes it go away. And so sometimes people who are sensitive to those side effects, we just give them Cogentin or Benadryl with the Haldol or the Prolixin or whatever they're taking to prevent those side effects from happening. But the one thing that we really don't have a great handle on is tardive dyskinesia. So that's just a fancy word for people who have um, a side effect of uncontrollable facial movements. And you've maybe, um, you can also see this by the way, in people who use meth, um, they get very similar mouth movements. Um, but this is actually from medication, not from meth. Um, and this can be permanent sometimes, which is really uh, crushing. But interestingly, most patients don't necessarily notice those side effects, but they're highly visible to other people. And so it sort of makes you look weird and, and certainly doesn't help, you know, if you're trying to integrate socially uh, in the community. Um, but then if you go over to the newer antipsychotics, they, they don't have as many movement disorders, although that is still a possibility. Uh, but their most pressing and side effects are the metabolic effects, which I would argue are actually sort of more terrible in the long run because they can actually impact your life expectancy. Uh, we know that people with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder already have an increased risk of stroke and heart attack. And you add in this medication side effects and you're really bumping up the risk of stroke and heart attack because it causes weight gain, high cholesterol, high blood sugar to the point where you could get diabetes. Um, so we don't have great treatments, again, for the side effects for these. Um, you know, we can recommend diet and exercise and portion control and all that. But, you know, there's, there's sort of um, an inherent mechanism in the medication that makes people more hungry. And so, you know, how, how much can you tell when, you're, when your body is telling you to eat? Can you tell them not to eat or eat healthier? 
um, especially for people with food insecurity, you know, they're just trying to get any food, let alone healthy food. Uh, so when you look at both groups of antipsychotics, they're actually equally effective at treating the illness. Um, so it's sort of like, hmm, pick your poison. Do you want movement disorders or do you want metabolic effects? Uh, the other thing to pay attention to is there's only one antipsychotic that actually showed increased um, efficacy, increased ability at treating illness. That's the, the sort of best antipsychotic we have, and that's clozapine. But it also has a kajillion number of side effects, and they kick in at pretty low doses, and they're pretty challenging to control. So that's why we don't often use it um, until other antipsychotics have failed. But it is an extremely effective medication. Okay, questions. So we have a question about what are some of the second generation antipsychotics that's been written in chat? Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Zyprexa, Risperdal, Seroquel, Abilify, Latuda, Geodon, basically all the ones that your clients are probably on. <laughs> Do injections start working faster than oral medication? Um... So not really. <laughs> um, what, so there's, there's uh, the kind of like emergency injections that we give in the hospital that are intramuscular, um, that uh, those happen really fast. But the ones that you give like in the clinic or at home that they get once a month or once every three months, the long acting antipsychotics, they don't kick in faster. And in fact, they actually have to be on the pill form uh, for approximately two weeks, although every medication is a little bit different before um, <clears throat> they can even have the injectable medication start to work. So if you just gave somebody a long acting injection and no pills, you're actually not gonna see any benefit probably for like maybe two months down the road because it really takes a long time for the medication to reach um, a therapeutic level in your blood. Um, whereas the pills actually sort of do that more, more quickly. But then once um, you get to a certain point, then you can stop taking pills and just rely on the injection. So now we're gonna look at those pesky medication myths. And you know, in some ways there's like a ton of them. So I just chose the, mo the four most common ones I tend to hear. Um, so the first one and the ever present, they're addictive. Um, so we don't actually prescribe any medications that, that are addictive except for benzodiazepines. That is the only category of addictive medications that we prescribe. So um, unless they're on those, the A, they're wrong, um, but B, a lot of people confuse uh, the withdrawal effects that they might have when they stop the medication to somehow indicate that they're addictive. But that's actually sort of a different biological process. It's not the same. And most of the time we can actually um, make the withdrawal effects really small or completely not have them at all. If we just take the client off the medication very slowly by slowly uh, over time, 
Um, unfortunately, a lot of clients just stop them on their own for whatever reason. Um, maybe it's side effects or maybe they just don't think they need it anymore. And so that's often when they feel the withdrawal effects and somehow make the assumption that they're addictive. Unfortunately, though, benzos are addictive, which is why we try not to prescribe them. Uh, okay, they make you into a zombie. That's another one of my favorites. Um, so if, you're, if the medications are making someone too sleepy and too foggy, the, the real answer is that's just not the right fit for that particular client. Um, and by the way, I apologize. Sometimes I use patient um, because that's what we use instead of client. So if I, if I say patient, I apologize. I don't want to offend anyone. Um, so if you are in fact um, too sleepy or too foggy, that just means that that particular medication isn't just, is not the right fit with your particular body. And we just need to try something else. Um, everybody metabolizes medication differently and you just don't know, you know, if it's gonna make them too sleepy or too foggy until you try it. Um, and so if that's the case, then we need to switch the medication. It's as simple as that. A medication that is right for your body and that is working should not make you feel too sleepy and should not make you feel too foggy. Now, uh, there are a few cases, I should say, where we actually do kind of want that side effect. Um, and that's for people who are really violent. And sometimes like the only way we're able to tamp down the violence is frankly by making them sleepy. Um, and so occasionally we use that. And then of course, sometimes people like to be sleepy for whatever reason. Um, some, some clients ask me for that, in which case, okay, fine. Um, but just keep that in mind that it certainly doesn't have to be that way and shouldn't be that way if they don't want it that way. Um, another classic, it worked for my friends, so it will work for me. Um, the important thing is that essentially every person Every person's body, brain, and biology are different. And that means the way it works in you might not be the same that it works in me. So it actually tells me nothing if um, Zoloft really worked for your friend and therefore you think it'll work for you. Uh, that gives me no information. And unfortunately, we haven't been, we're not sophisticated enough that we can sort of uh, maybe take your blood and run it through the computer and say, oh, aha, these are the 10 medications that are going to really work for you. I think in the future, I don't know how far in the future we'll be able to do that, but for right now, it's just trial and error. Okay, and then the last um, medication myth, I can stop taking my medications when I feel better. Um, the important thing to know about that um, is that... Uh, once, and this is actually not true just for psychiatric medications, but basically for all medications. Um, once you are taking the medication, the reason it's working is because it's in your system. And there are different medications that need to be in your body long enough to get to the point where it's working. Some take days, antipsychotic takes days, antidepressants takes many, many weeks. But nevertheless, they all get to a point where there's enough of the medicine flowing in your blood and in your brain to be working. But once you stop that medication, 
the medication level goes down to zero and then it's not controlling the symptoms anymore. So if you're feeling better, that's because the medicine is in your system and it's working. It's real, real common for people to just stop because they feel better. And you can pretty much guarantee that within a few days or a few weeks, their symptoms will come right back. Cause that's just, unfortunately, our medicines are not, they're not curing medications. They're symptom controlling medications. Okay. Conspiracy theories and delusions. Um, I've written some of my favorites down here. <laughs> you want to experiment on me, that's probably the number one I, I hear. Or my favorite, you get paid if I take this. Uh, I don't get paid more whether somebody takes one medication or another. Um, but how do we dispel these conspiracy theories and delusions? Now, the short answer is it is ridiculously hard. Um, doesn't mean you shouldn't try, but to be honest, um, the whole point of delusions is that they're fixed and they don't change. And however much you try and convince them otherwise, um, you know, you can talk to you, you're blue in the face and that's not going to change. So just sort of be aware that there's probably a limit to the impact that you can have on these sort of strange ideas. And and of course, conspiracy theories hardly feel any different from delusions these days. Uh, so again, very hard to impact. But the important thing is don't argue about the facts because that is not going to work. But what you can try and do is focus on the feelings. So let's say you have someone who says, uh, you know, the CIA has planted a chip in my brain and they're following me everywhere. Um, I have to, you know, I have to hide, I, I wrap my head in aluminum foil so the, they can't track me. Um, so rather than, you know, saying, hey, there is no chip in your brain and we're going to take an x-ray and show you there's no chip in your brain, that's not going to work. Um, but what you might want to do is focus on the feelings. So I might say to them, hey, you know, this sounds really, really terrible that, that you're feeling um, like you're being followed all the time. That must be really anxiety producing. Can I give you some medication to help you with the anxiety? So I sort of focus on the fact that I'm giving them medication to address the feeling as opposed to the delusion because you are going to get nowhere if you tell them that their that their thoughts are not real, and I have this medication that's going to make it so that you know it's not real. You're going to get nowhere with that. Uh, but frankly, to be honest, um, that whole anxiety thing <laughs> doesn't work very often, very rarely. But you know, I still try it. Um, you don't want to agree with the delusion just to gain their trust. That will get you in hot water every time. Um, so you want to try and focus, if you can, on something that the client cares about and try and explain to them how medications can help them get to that goal. Uh, also, um, you can try CBT for psychosis. Now, I say this, of course, to uh, I'm well aware that it's, you know, virtually impossible to get very specific um, therapeutic modalities in the county. Um, but I'll put it out there anyways. Um, it is also a very long, arduous process, and I'm not sh sure that's also going to be terribly effective with the delusion, but it's worth a try. 
Um, and of course, ironically, the one thing that might help those, the delusions is the medication, but you have to get them to take it in the first place. Um, and then of course you could use 5150 as a last resort if the client is dangerous. And sort of the rule of thumb is if you can get somebody to take medication for a few days, especially if we're talking about antipsychotics, um, that that medication kicks in pretty quickly. And then they can sort of begin to have fewer side effects, they get less paranoid, and they might get a little bit more insight. And once you get past those few days, then they're often willing to continue to take the medicine because some part of them is aware that it's working. Um, but there's those first few days can be really rocky trying to get them to take the medicine. If they're dangerous, we give them injections. Uh, and so sometimes that's how we overcome the barrier that they don't want to take pills. Uh, and then of course, there's a, a Reese hearing that you can do with a judge if you file a 14 day hold. And so there's, a, there's sort of a legal process where you can actually say to the person, if you don't take a pill, I'm gonna give you a shot. But that has to be um, approved by the judge or the court officer. So that's another way to go. Okay, the important thing here that I'd like to point out is that you do not have to have delusions. You don't have to be paranoid to have problems with trust with doctors and with the healthcare system. And that's because of the history that we have in this country. So I'm gonna go through a few examples of why our history is particularly um, deleterious for trust with patients, um, at least in this country. Okay. Um, the, the example I hope everybody has maybe heard of, Tuskegee syphilis study, that was between 1932 and 1972. Um, they followed 600 rural black men in Alabama. And the whole idea of the study was to look at what syphilis was when it was untreated. So actually to follow its course throughout someone's life to see what symptoms would arise if you didn't treat the syphilis. But that was the real point of the study, but they didn't tell the men participating in the study that that was what they were doing. They lied and they said it was treatment for bad blood. Um, so super unethical. Then it even got more unethical. In 1947, they actually came up with a good treatment um, for syphilis penicillin. And to this day, that is the gold standard treatment for treatment for syphilis, for syphilis, sorry. Uh, but they did not offer that to the men in the study. So here are these men that we knew that we were infected and we can make their infection go away. And they didn't. Instead, they just observed them for these 40 years. Uh, and then as a result, many men died from syphilis complications and actually some wives and children of the couples con contracted the disease. Um, okay, the, another sort of really frightening uh, historical moment in the United States, the forced sterilization of mentally ill and developmentally delayed women in this country. So in 1907, uh, that was the first eugenics law. Eugenics means well-born. It was this whole movement to get people to um, sort of have the, the a sort of um, a best race. Like this, this is going to be our human race that is the best that we can have. Of course, their definition of best um, 
was pretty racist. Uh, so they made sterilization mandatory for criminals, idiots, rapists, and imbeciles in state custody. And of course, that was the language in the law. That's not my language. Um, from 1910 to 1920s, California laws specifically led to the sterilization of 20,000 disproportionately Black and Mexican people in mental institutions. And generally, in, in country uh, nationwide, um, between the 1900s and 1970s in over 30 states, including Puerto Rico, by the way, 70,000 Americans were sterilized and they were disproportionately Black, Latina, and Native American women. And really, even more sadly, is this is not so ancient history because even today, uh, they will sometimes use forced sterilization in exchange, in exchange for prison sentence reduction for women. So they might say, hey, you know, you can get off 10 years if you uh, get a hysterectomy. Um, and of course, there have been some examples of forced sterilization and ICE detention. Um, so uh, that has sadly not entirely gone away, although certainly not at the levels that we used to see. Okay. Recent history, um, this is now, <laughs> COVID-19 inequities. So uh, just looking at what's happening now around us, uh, we know that indigenous Black Pacific Islanders and Latinx people are dying at much higher rates of COVID-19. We know that the groups, the ethnic groups that are at the highest rate for dying from COVID are actually getting fewer vaccines. Uh, we know that the poorest people have the highest job loss rate, especially at the beginning of the uh, pandemic um, from February to June. And um, just to sort of show the opposite side that the wealth of US billionaires actually increased during the pandemic, pandemic by 39%. So you, these are just a few examples in history of why people might have trouble trusting healthcare and doctors specifically. So what do we know? Uh, we know that 55% of Black Americans don't trust the healthcare system. We know Latinx Americans are more likely to delay healthcare um, or drop out of treatment when their symptoms disappear. 25% of Native Americans are reporting discrimination when they go to a hospital or a clinic. And people in general who distrust healthcare are less likely to take medical advice, less likely to keep follow-up appointments, and definitely less likely to fill prescriptions. So we know there is a sort of verifiable, countable impact on this distrust. And how do you address it? Um, I think really the most important thing is to uh, acknowledge this ugly history that we have and validate the feelings of any particular client who might have trouble trusting doctors in healthcare and encourage an open discussion about history. And also remember that things have changed and current science um, has certainly changed in the way we do science now. 
Um, and, and, you know, you can maybe educate yourself a little bit before you have this discussion with the client, if you happen to know their particular beef, so you know, you know, what specifically to target about the science, um, and be open about the emotions involved and explore how can you make them feel more comfortable, ask them. Um, and depending on where you are, of course, what clinic, how many choices you have, you can try and offer a doctor of color or a doctor who is fluent in the native language of the client. Uh, sometimes that can help people feel um, more, more trustworthy of the doctors in the process. And there's actually been some studies that showed that having um, a doctor of the same ethnicity, um, people often have better outcomes. Okay, questions. <laughs> yes, so I have a question about any suggestion as how to work with a specialist or medical doctor who dismisses psychotropic medications without consulting the team? The, when the client discontinues them? Um, the, well, the medical professional uh, oh, misses them. Got yeah, so it. Got this, it. The example is that the client's paranoid to take medication because uh, they experienced a seizure while receiving an injectable of Abilify. Mm -hmm. And so she, she's afraid that medication caused the seizure. And so she saw a neurologist and they told her to stop taking it. Yeah. Um, I think the first thing you want to actually do before you even talk to the client is have a conversation with the doctor. And it's probably best to have the doctor talk with the doctor in that instance, um, because that's going to get into a lot of sort of medical lingo and you don't want to be in the middle of that. But if you could coordinate that conversation, that would be really helpful. Um, sometimes they're right and sometimes they're wrong and sometimes, frankly, um, the, the evidence is fuzzy, whether it's one way or the other way. And I think oftentimes they don't, uh, the medical doctor, um, or I should say the doctor who is the non-psychiatric doctor, uh, might not be aware of the significance that antipsychotics play in their wellness and in their outcomes in life. Um, so sometimes it's just a matter of educating them and say, okay, look, if we're worried about Abilify causing seizures, let's try another antipsychotic. All right, here we are. Now we're going to stop talking about all the obstacles and talking about ways that we can help clients stay on medications. Uh, so we're looking at practical solutions. So access. Strangely enough, that's actually a huge um, bear here. Um, it's just sort of getting to the pharmacy, getting that bottle home and taking your meds for some reason is huge. Uh, so we actually know that clinics that have pharmacies actually on site, there's a pharmacy that's connected and attached to the clinic, reduces um, psych hospitalizations and ER visits, believe it or not medication delivery. So if you're getting it delivered to their home, of course, um, that's quite helpful. So then you don't have to worry about how they're going to get to the pharmacy. And then uh, if you don't have those options, then maybe you can think about um, 
helping with transportation, either to the pharmacy, to the clinic, or even to the lab where they're gonna get their blood drawn. Um, remember, there are some health insurance um, companies that will cover transportation to those places if, if money is a barrier. Um, but the, the sort of the wonder that putting a pharmacy in the clinic um, re reduces hospitalizations and ER visits, it's, it's uh, unfortunate that I, I don't think we really have very much of that. I don't know of any in the DMH system. So that would be something huge we could um, sort of advocate for and push in the future. Um, also taking medication every day. You know, who remembers to take their medication? Sometimes, especially clients with schizophrenia, they actually have the cognitive changes that go along with that illness, which just makes they're thinking a lot less clear. Uh, and so sometimes they just have trouble organizing to take medicine every day, let alone just our own sort of human memories that make us forget. So there are some things that help with that. Pillboxes and bubble packs, we'll, I'll show you an example of those. Um, if you even just lower the number of times you have to take a medication per day, or the number of medications in total that you take it all, of course, that would help um, with adherence. If you put medication near visual clues, so maybe you know the client brushes their teeth every night and every morning, so you put the medication next to their toothbrush, or maybe they have their morning coffee and so you can put it next to their coffee maker. Uh, and then of course, uh, the tried and true having somebody else in the house that they live with um, either reminding them or actually giving them their medication. Certainly family members can be enormously helpful or also some board and cares um, actually just give clients their medication. Um, some, some do, some don't. You gotta ask ahead of time. Okay, so here's an example. These are the pill boxes that I'm talking about. And one thing that's really helpful for this is if you have a client that you know is not so good with adherence, but is actually willing to take the medication and you think all you have to do is just sort of organize it for them, um, the nurses within a clinic um, can actually take the patient's pill bottle and take the pill box and organize it for them and do that every week. So the client comes in, gets their pill box and goes home. Uh, so they've got sort of um, a really easy way to take them because we've pre-filled their, their um, pill box for the week. Uh, these are my favorites. I don't know if you see this one on the left, the 8 a.m. Monday, November 21st, and it has all the pills that they're supposed to take at that particular time on that particular day. Those are awesome. I love those. Um, they're not super easy to find, um, but there are some pharmacies that will do that, so you can ask. Uh, also, similarly, this, on, this picture on the right, that's a bubble pack. Uh, again, some pharmacies offer that, some don't, but you can certainly ask for them. And, you know, you're in this case, you probably need to uh, educate your client that this is an option and ask and have them ask the pharmacy or, you know, you could ask the pharmacy as well if they offer these. And you can see there's separate categories for breakfast, lunch, dinner, and bedtime. Uh, so it makes it super easy. Um, 
the sort of interesting thing, and I, you know, I'm not sort of plugging this institution as this is where all people should go, but uh, the AIDS Healthcare Foundation has done a beautiful job of actually combining all of these factors together to make it really easy for clients to take their medication. And if you think about it, HIV is one of those medications where adherence is crucial, right? It can be life and death. And they have to take a lot of medications and they have to take it every day. That is essential. So they have actually put the pharmacies inside their clinics. They even have the labs inside the clinics so they can draw the blood and get the levels inside the clinics. Um, they, these, these little packages um, on the left and the, actually those and the bubble packs those are the only clinics that I've actually seen use them. Um, the, I'm sorry, the only pharmacies I've seen that do these uh, to make it super easy. So AIDS Healthcare Foundation has lots of money, but what's nice is that they've really thought um, progressively about how do we create an environment that um, encourages medication adherence. Uh, I hope one day that uh, the county will do the same, um, you know, bit by bit, um, we can we can peel away at these problems. Okay, long acting injectable medications. Here's the answer to that question somebody was asking. So we have four right now, um, only four antipsychotics that come in the injectable form. Risperdal, which comes as Invega Sustaina or Trinza, Abilify, which comes as Maintaina or Aristata. We've got Haldol that comes as Haldol Decanoate and Prolixin, which comes as Prolixin Decanoate. So unfortunately, that's all we've got right now. Um, but you know, I think they're becoming increasingly popular and I am sure um, antipsychotic, the other antipsychotics are hard at work at developing their own long acting injectables. So I presume we will have more in the future. And the reason they're so popular is because, surprise, surprise, if they're going to increase um, med medication adher adherence, then they're going to redu reduce relapse with symptoms, they're gonna reduce hospitalizations and incarcerations, of course, reducing doctor visits and pharmacy visits. And the all more important probably to the client is that they reduce side effects. Um, again, though, remember that they do need to take the pills for a short period of time before the injections actually start to work. Um, but they're, they're so essential for most people who frankly just don't either remember or can't get it together to take a pill every day. And really all of these medications, um, antipsychotics, uh, antidepressants and mood stabilizers, they only work if you're taking it every day, so. Okay, how to advocate for your clients. So I'm just gonna go through some basic principles to think about for you guys to think about how can you uh, sort of engage in discussion about medication adherence with your client and what we know but based on evidence but based on research that works. So health literacy. Uh, the important thing here is that you really want to help your clients understand basic health information so that they can make better decisions. 
uh, emphasis on basic. It doesn't have to be rocket science. Uh, you also want to identify clients with either limited or no reading skills. That's huge, right? Because what's the point of, you know, handing them some information to read about side effects if they can't read? Or what if they can't read the bottle of medication? Um, I'm like, I pound this into my, my residents about remembering to ask about literacy levels. Um, I sort of, and I don't say, hey, do you not know how to read? Because that's, you know, it's not a great way to put it. I ask them, how is their reading level? Is it high, low, medium? Um, and once you get into the low range, then maybe you can explore that a little bit more. Um, but that unfortunately can be quite common. And if you're not asking, then you're not going to know. Of course, you want to use simple language, keep the important points to a minimum and repeat it over and over. And uh, you want the material to be in their primary language, if at all possible. Um, oftentimes, clients might not be so good with processing auditory information. Maybe they need the visual component. And so you can go on any search engine and find models or pictures or videos about specific medications. Um, to sort of communicate the ideas maybe more easily and in, in, in a different way, in a visual way. Uh, you can explain how to take their medication and then have the client repeat it back so you know that they actually heard what you said and got it. Um, also, there are so many forms involved in healthcare and especially if they have low literacy level, low education, those can be really challenging. And I know so many of you already do that, but I just wanna encourage helping with health insurance forms, uh, SSI forms, all the many forms that we have to do for healthcare. And of course, whatever materials you're offering, if at possible, remember that they can, should reflect the client's age, culture, and ethnic diversity. Uh, motivational interviewing. Okay, I'm sure you've had this pounded in your head a thousand times. It's the collaborative goal-oriented style of communication. And the whole point is that you're trying to strengthen a client's motivation for change and you're moving toward a specific goal. So this can be applied, of course, to medication adherence. And there are actual um, uh, online uh, courses that you can take in med med sorry, motivational interviewing specifically for medication adherence, um, but it's actually not that much, it's not really rocket science. So we're gonna take a client here and an example, and I'm gonna have you guys uh, unmute yourselves and give me some answers. So Clay is a 20 year old male with bipolar one disorder. He's a typical Southern California skater and surfer who's very active, but he has limited insight into his diagnosis and he just wants to be a normal young adult. Uh, incidentally, his father has similar mood symptoms but has never engaged in treatment. And Clay is convinced that his medicine is slowing him down, which is quite possible because he's on an antipsychotic, but he's adamant that once he's off probation, he's gonna stop taking all of his medication, which is a stipulation of his probation at this moment. He denies any past psychosis, even when you use simple language to describe it. 
And the clinicians have been trying to remind him of that time when his tattoos were talking to him to sort of help him understand, um, gain insight into his illness and understand maybe what changed between when his tattoos were talking to him and now that they're not. So what would you guys do to go to further his goals using motivational interviewing for Clay here? We also have in chat, um, we have a couple people wrote in um, reflective listening to validate concerns and explore the pros and cons of being on the medication, ask barriers or challenges, kind of gauge those and see their worries and concerns talking about that more. Mm-hmm. And then- all good ideas. Um I haven't heard anybody mention, but perhaps we could connect his skating and his surfing, which we know he loves. Maybe we could connect that with medication adherence because if he's so psychotic that his tattoos are talking to him, I'm not sure how, uh, how uh, enthusiastic he's going to be to get out there and, and sort of continue with his usual hobbies. Okay, Um, here's some quick, like super concrete suggestions for you guys to to help advocate for your patients through care coordination and also facilitating transitions of care. So every time your client goes for a clinic appointment or a hospital visit, especially if that's like a medical um, visit where where they might not have access to uh, their psychiatric medications, you want to make sure they have a list of not only their psych meds, but their non-psych meds. And when you're communicating um, their medication, you always got to include the dose and the number of times per day. For some reason, oftentimes when I talk to non-prescribers, they leave out the number of times of day. And actually that's super important. Um, so we know how much medicine they're on in general. If you don't know all their medications, because who can keep track? One of the easiest ways is if you know the pharmacy where they get their medicines, hopefully by and large, it's just one or maybe two, you just get the pharmacy name and either the phone number or sometimes the clients can just tell you what cross street it's on. So if they're at the, they go to the CVS on Broadway and second, then that's very easy for us to Google. We call um, the pharmacy and we can get their full list accurate list of medications that way. Also just remember, if you happen to know what medications worked for somebody in the past, please share that with the doctor. Um, I cannot tell you, you know, our, our clients have so many doctors in and out of their lives, which is a real shame. Um, it's a lot of, of topsy-turvy and inevitably then medications get changed sometimes for reasons we know and sometimes for reasons we don't know. But if you know something that worked for them ever in their past, uh, it's always a good bet to go with that medicine and try that medicine first, because otherwise it's sort of trial and error what we're doing. Okay, and in terms of thinking about facilitating care transitions, if you have a client that's going to be discharged from an emergency room, from an inpatient unit, or from jail or prison, you wanna try and get this information before they leave if possible. Get a list of their medications, uh, especially any new medications. 
they should all be leaving with a one month prescription or a one month supply of medicine. So make sure that that's happening. And then you wanna ask, was your client on any long acting antipsychotics? Were they given those? Sometimes those get lost in the shuffle. And those are hugely important because you gotta know what day they got it on. So then you know when the next one is due. Otherwise they just got it um, for no reason. And then you start all over again. So find out is the injection every two weeks, every four weeks, every three months? Um, when was their last injection? So you know exactly when the next one is gonna be needed and you can ask where they can get their next injection. If they don't have that information, uh, I've got a little cheat for you, which is that almost all the mental health urgent cares offer long acting injectables and they're the, a great place to sort of fill in if a client is about to run out of medications and they don't have a doctor, uh, they haven't been assigned a doctor or you can't get a hold of the doctor, this is the best place to go and get refills. But remember, you gotta go first thing in the morning, otherwise the lines can be rather painful, hours and hours. Um, not all mental health urgent cares, cares have all the, anti, the long acting antipsychotics. So you kind of want to call ahead and check and see, hey, do you have the Abilify Maintainer injectable? So you know if that's the place to go and get it. And try and bring proof of when they had the last injection, the actual date, so they know, oh, okay, they're due for it. And also what the dose was. So here's some mental health urgent cares. Exodus East Side, that's across the street from the Psyche R at USC. Exodus West Side in Culver City, La Casa in Long Beach. You've got all of you, which is just about three blocks down from the main hospital of all of you. And then Exodus MLK, which is on the MLK uh, campus. Okay, so here very quickly, you can always read these and print them out. These are my references for all those statistics I talked about. Now, do you guys have any lingering questions? Any suggestions for members who are interested in holistic medicine to treat their mental health? Um, <laughs> oh, I'm not a good resource for that. I'm not entirely, you know, what, what, how you would define holistic medicine. Are you talking about like, um, like herbal remedies or something that I would definitely not be the right person for that. I'm not sure that what you mean by like yoga or acupuncture. Um, I would certainly encourage people to use more than one modality, um, but I do not know of any holistic treatment um, that is going to be equally efficacious with um, for antipsychotics specifically. So for schizophrenia, um, I would be very cautious about sort of seeking out alternative remedies. Equally bipolar disorder, um, those are particularly tricky if they're not also taking medication. Um, but depression, anxiety, that is a hugely open um, sort of category. We know therapy uh, certain therapy modalities work just as well as medication. 
Um, I often encourage both, of course, but um, if they're adamant about not wanting meds, then there are all kinds of things that people can do for depression and anxiety that aren't related to medication. Um, certainly though, if someone is sort of continually hitting a wall and, and feel as though their symptoms haven't been adequately treated, uh, medication certainly can be helpful. And remember uh, that we treat anxiety not with benzos anymore. I mean, that's sort of like, a, you know, sort of like an emergency basis um, or, or a very temporary basis, but really we use antidepressants now to treat anxiety. It's, it's very effective. Um, you just gotta, again, hang in with the long amount of time that it takes to build up in your system. Um, and of course it's about finding the right medication. And, and the thing I would say about the way we do medication now, because it is trial and error, Remember that sometimes it just takes a while to find that right medicine for that person and that person's body, but don't be discouraged if the first medicine doesn't work um, because that's unfortunately, we just haven't gotten super sophisticated about how to choose that right medicine for that person. Another question? We often experience family members not understanding that we cannot mandate clients to take their medication. Yeah. Is there an approach for family members you would recommend? They've already done the psycho ed and referred to NAMI. <laughs> Those are the things I would suggest. Um, you know, I would just do a lot of validation of, of their feelings and their experience and encourage them to talk about that. Um, you know, I, I think the really truly sad um, and, and sort of unethical thing about our mental health system in the United States is that we, we have such a crappy system that all the burden is on the family members. And especially if you have a client that's violent and the family is sort of taking on that burden of, you know, being their punching bag or, you know, their house is getting on fire because, you know, they're putting cigarettes out on the carpet or something like that. Um, you know, it's really unfair that we've asked family members to sort of take on all of the care because we've decided as a, as a society that we don't want to take care of people with mental illness. Um, and that's, you know, it's such an unfair burden. And I think that, um, just talking about that is really important. Um, the other thing is, um, you know, you could talk about long acting medications. If you can get the client to just get a shot once every month, um, sometimes it's easier to talk them into that than sort of having a daily fight about, I need you to take this pill. Uh, you don't want to put the family in that position if at all possible. Um, so, uh, but that's sort of more what you already talked about, psychoeducation. Um, there, you, you can talk about conservatorship. Really, that's the only option in which we can um, sort of for the long term uh, have people be on treatment um, to the point where if they're not taking them, then we can give, if they're not taking their pills, we can give them injections. Of course, that's like more in the hospital setting, but um, 
that's really the only tool we have at this point. The other thing I would say is I would encourage the families to, and I know this sounds bizarro, but call your local representative, your, your local congressperson and communicate your frustrations because as long as we sort of keep all of these problems in our little mental health bubble and no one outside of, of the community is hearing about these problems, the less likely your you know, local congressperson is to introduce a bill or, or uh, vote yes on that bill. Um, a lot of what we have right now exists because of political changes. Um, we have gone so far, the pendulum has swung so far um, it, for patient rights, and we've lost all of the places that we used to have for the severely mentally ill who truly cannot take care of themselves. And we've asked families to do that. And, uh, I, you know, it's, it's really, it's a shame that we've, that we've sort of laid that burden at their feet. And then is the, been told antipsychotics typically treat hallucinations. Are there antipsychotics that stand out to treat delusions? No is the short answer. So what we know, this is what we know about antipsychotics. They do a great job of treating what we call the positive symptoms. So hallucinations and delusions, the sort of super obvious symptoms that you can see, you know, they're talking to themselves or, um, you know, they're shadow boxing, um, though, and, and paranoia. We know that all antipsychotics are really good at treating those and they're equally effective all across the board, old ones, new ones, doesn't matter. For a while, um, when the new antipsychotics came out, the Zyprexa, Risperdal, Abilify, uh, Geodon, Seroquel, um, they sort of uh, advertised themselves as treating the negative symptoms. And so by the negative symptoms of psychosis, of specifically of schizophrenia, it's the things like, um, you know, they don't bathe, uh, they don't take care of their hygiene. Uh, they, they're socially isolated, socially withdrawn. Sometimes their speech is really limited. We call it poverty of speech. They don't speak very much. Um, uh, they sort of sit around like a bump on a log. You know, Families will all often say, hey, they're so lazy, I can't get them to do anything. That's actually a motivation. It's actually a negative symptom of schizophrenia. So they had, in the olden days, not that olden days, like in the 90s, all those medications said, hey, we do a better job of treating negative symptoms. Well, it turns out that was a complete line of BS. They all treat all of the symptoms equally well and frankly, equally poorly because we know the antipsychotics don't do a great job of tackling all those negative symptoms. Um, we've, we've really dropped the, or we, I don't know, the pharmaceutical industry has really dropped the ball. Um, all of these copycat medications that have been coming out, all the new ones that I haven't even listed because they're not even on county formulary yet, 
they are all copycat medications. They all do exactly the same thing that all the old ones have done, except they're just more expensive. Um, so nobody has really figured out how to treat the negative symptoms. So sometimes you can get lucky um, and it just happens to help. Um, also with delusions, sometimes just over time with medication, the, the delusions will become less or sometimes it's not that the delusion goes away, but that they just care about it less, like they're less invested in it. So maybe if you ask that guy with the chip in his head who's being followed by the CIA, he'll tell you, I don't need to wear uh, aluminum foil anymore. But if you ask him directly, yeah, they're still following me. But he just, he just is worried by it less. But there's no sort of one medicine over another medicine that's going to treat one symptom versus another symptoms. All our antipsychotics are basically the same. You mentioned that our liver function decreases as we age. Can you talk a bit more about what this does in regards to efficacy for medication or other side effects? So in general, it increases side effects for really all medications that go through the liver. Most medications are processed through the liver, not all, but most. And I mean, I'm not just talking about psych medications, I'm talking about all medications. Uh, so oftentimes as we get older that um, we sometimes have to go lower in a dose with any particular, you know, whether this is like a blood pressure medicine or, or an antipsychotic, um, because they're more sensitive to the side effects. Um, and I'm sorry, you did, you saw something else about the antipsychotic that you wanted to know, um, with age, I'm forgetting what the other efficacy and oh, side effects. Efficacy. Mm -hmm. Um, so efficacy, hmm, um, that's, that's a little bit more complicated and it probably depends on the medicine, how long they've been on it and their particular um, biology, all their whatever medical problems they have. But in general, efficacy does not go down as you get older. Thanks so much, you guys, for, for listening and participating. I know it's hard on a, a beautiful spring Friday afternoon.